Good evening, everyone, and um, many thanks for braving the cold. I'm delighted to welcome all of you and see so many of you uh, this evening in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historicals President and CEO. Um, I do hope that if you haven't yet had a chance to see our uh, stellar and gorgeous and um, interesting and provocative exhibition, The Armory Show at 100, which is a reprise of the 1913 Armory Show that introduced New York and the United States to modern art, um, that you will come back during regular museum hours to see it. There are more than 100 pieces, uh, paintings and sculptures that were in that original show, and they've come here from all over the United States and Europe. This is truly a once-in-a-lifetime chance to see these great works and um, the incredible historical context that we've given them. Uh, I also hope that you'll have a chance to see uh, our Gilded Age portrait show, which is on this floor, and also Clarice Smith, Recollections of a Life in Art, on our second floor. And don't miss our classic film series, um, which is available on most Friday evenings. We have film flyers that you can take and check out on your way out this evening. Um, I also want to encourage anyone here who is not yet a member of the New York Historical Society to please join. Uh, members play an extremely important role in all of the work that we do, including enabling great programs like this one this evening and great exhibitions and education for more than 200,000 New York City public school students each year. Tonight's program, Grant Takes Vicksburg, is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. And as always, I would like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great support, which has enabled us to bring so many wonderful historians and writers to this auditorium. I would also like to recognize one of our trustees. I see only one of our trustees in the audience tonight, uh, Mr. Morris Offit, and to thank him for all his work and great deeds on behalf of this institution. Thank you so much, Morris. Thank you. And um, I'd like to thank the many members of our Chairman's Council who are with us this evening and to recognize another great historian um, and biographer among us, Ron Chernow. We're always thrilled to have you with us, Ron. Thank you. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. Um, as always, we ask you to line up to my left and to my right in the aisles. So um, we do that so that the, uh, the speakers on the stage can hear your questions, and so can the audience as well. Um, we also will have a book signing following tonight's program. And um, please do join us for that, uh, the writer's author's books. Our speakers' books are available in our museum store. We are so very thrilled to welcome James M. McPherson back to the New York Historical Society. James McPherson is the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History Emeritus at Princeton University and one of the country's preeminent Civil War scholars. He's the best-selling author of numerous books on the Civil War, including Battle Cry of Freedom, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1989. He's a two-time winner of the Lincoln Prize for his books, Tried by War, Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief, and for Cause and Comrades, Why Men Fought in the Civil War. His most recent book is War on the Waters, the Union and Confederate Navies, 1861 to 1865. We are also pleased to welcome back John F. Marzalik, the Giles Distinguished Professor of History Emeritus at Mississippi State University, and the Executive Director and Managing Editor of the Ulysses S. Grant Association, which has published 32 volumes of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant. Professor Marzalik is the author or editor of 13 books, including Sherman, A Soldier's Passion for Order, which was a finalist for the Lincoln Prize, and Sherman's Other War, in 2004, the Mississippi Historical Society presented him with its highest award, the BLC Wales Award for National Distinction in History. Our moderator this evening is Harold Holzer, the Roger Hertog Fellow at the New York Historical Society and the chairman of the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation. He is the author, co-author, or editor of more than 40 books on Lincoln and the Civil War era 
and in 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal. He served as a content consultant to the Steven Spielberg film Lincoln, and his latest book, The Civil War in 50 Objects, tells the story of the Civil War through the use of 50 objects from the New York Historical Society's collection. And of course, Mr. Hulser was also the chief historian on our award-winning exhibition, Lincoln and New York. Before we begin, as always, I'd like to ask that you please make sure that anything like a cell phone that makes a noise is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. Well, good evening, everyone. I know why you're all here, because you knew that we were going to be discussing an event that climaxed on the 4th of July in the South. This is going to warm you up, just dreaming about, but it was terrible. As you, will, as you will hear. So we're, you know, for those of you who are here for this other um, installments of the series that we've been doing, that we've tried along the way to uh, mark the 150th anniversary of these events. And admittedly, we're a little late uh, on the sesquicentennial of the capture of Vicksburg. No disrespect intended to Vicksburg. But it's sort of been, in a way, uh, the fate of Vicksburg in a lot of the popular history of the Civil War. General Grant, who was obviously oblivious to the ebbs and flows of public relations uh, and the news cycle, took Vicksburg around the same time as Meade won the Battle of Gettysburg. So since it took place in the West, away from most of the newspaper correspondents who were able to transmit stories quickly, they sort of got short shrift. Um, and let's start with the commander-in-chief, not with this guy. On July 4th, 1863, he announced the Gettysburg victory with a statement to the country assigning what he called the highest honor to the Army of the Potomac for this great success to the cause of the Union. Three days later, when he communicated to John Marzalek's favorite general, the desk-bound, hemorrhoid-plagued uh, Henry Halleck, about whom, if you're really interested in his medical condition, John's book is the best there, there is. Um, Lincoln reported that Vicksburg had surrendered to Grant and then turned the pressure up on Meade, saying that uh, if he can prosecute the war further against Lee, the rebellion would be over. Um, and then a, Vicks, uh, uh, a speech at the White House window on July 7th, 1863, talking about the succession of battles at Pennsylvania near to us. So I, I want to open, as we look at this great James Reed Lambden uh, painting of General Grant, which is part of the collection of this great institution and one of the, one of the paintings we featured in the book, is it an accident of timing? Is it the news cycle? Why is Lincoln more focused on Gettysburg than on the, the hugely important capture of Vicksburg? I'll, I'll begin. Um, I think what it, what it came down to in Lincoln's mind anyway, Lincoln was always, always very worried about the Army of the Potomac. What was it going to do? How was it going to react to, to whatever would happen? Whereas he is beginning already to develop a confidence in what Grant is doing in the West. So he didn't, I think he, it basically came down to, and I think this works with Halleck too, is that they allowed Grant to pretty much do his thing. Whereas they were very worried about what was happening at Gettysburg. Consider, for example, that Meade only becomes commanding general of the Army of the Potomac just a few days uh, before uh, Gettysburg hits. But I think finally, um, Harold is, is finishing a book or has finished a book on Lincoln and, and newspapers and Lincoln and the press. And we have to, have to admit it that the fact that Gettysburg is just a short distance away from New York, whereas Vicksburg is a long distance away. And when you consider that uh, telegraph uh, lines, uh, you, almost, you had to go to Cairo, Illinois, to send something east. So it just doesn't, doesn't get the same kind of publicity that, uh, that Gettysburg gets. Although uh, I will contend, as no surprise to Harold, I think, that uh, 
that I think what happened at Vicksburg in the long run is much more important than what happened at Gettysburg, but that's a whole other story. Well, it's certainly much more important in terms of the strategy of the Civil War. I'm not so sure that it's more important in terms of public opinion. Mm -hmm. um, Gettysburg far overshadows Vicksburg in terms of its impact on the northern public. Uh, and uh, I think it uh, probably does more to pump up northern morale, which had been at a very low ebb in the spring of 1863, uh, primarily because of defeats in the Eastern Theater at Chancellorsville and earlier at Fredericksburg. So while I think there's, some, there's a kind of a disjuncture between uh, what is strategically important in purely military terms in several campaigns in the Civil War, uh, where the North is frequently victorious and seizes huge amounts of territory in the Western theater, uh, but is not so successful in the Eastern theater, and the ebb and flow of Northern morale uh, responded to what's going on in the Eastern theater much more than it did in the other theaters of the war. No, I, I agree with that, and I, I think the, the very first line I think makes the most sense to me is that I think there is that difference, but I think strategically in how the war eventually is going to end up, I would argue that Vicksburg would still be more important than, than Gettysburg, but, but We'll again, give you a chance to fight that battle. Oh, good. No, I, <laughs> I don't disagree with that. I, okay. We won't fight that battle. We won't. <laughs> Let, let's, for, for those of us who haven't been to Vicksburg, um, let's start with Jim this time. Why is Vicksburg, uh, why does Grant think it's important enough, the Union think it's important enough to expend the energy and the time it took to take it, uh, and then maybe describe Vicksburg topographically for us because it's a fascinating and almost impregnable target. Well, there's an apocryphal story uh, told by uh, David Dixon Porter in his memoirs about a meeting between Lincoln, McClellan, Porter, and some others in November 1861 uh, when they take a look at the map of the uh, United States and especially of the Mississippi Valley. And Lincoln puts his finger on the map at, at Vicksburg and said, Vicksburg is the key to uh, gaining control of the war. That's total fiction. <laughs> Uh, at that time, in November 1861, Vicksburg was just one of several sites where the Confederates had established fortifications to protect uh, the Mississippi River. Uh, the most important were actually at the two extremes of Confederate territory in the Mississippi. One, 70 miles below New Orleans at Forts Jackson and St. Philip, and one at Columbus, Kentucky, uh, just a few miles south of Cairo, Illinois. Uh, Vicksburg becomes key uh, in 1862, and again, especially in 1863, uh, because these other Confederate bastions have fallen. Mm -hmm. uh, Farragut captures the forts below New Orleans, then New Orleans itself in April of 1862. The Union River Navy, then called the Western Flotilla, uh, forces the, and, and Grant's Shiloh, I mean, Grant's uh, capture of, uh, of uh, Fort Donelson and Fort Henry forced the evacuation of Columbus. And by the summer of 1862, uh, the Confederate control of the Mississippi Valley has shrunk down pretty much to Vicksburg and to a couple of other fortifications south of it in the Mississippi River. So Vicksburg has become key to gaining control of the Mississippi Valley by 1862. Uh, and one of the reasons why it is so crucial is the topography of the area. Vicksburg was a town built on a bluff that towers, goes up 200 feet uh, from the Mississippi River. And artillery implanted on, the, uh, on that bluff can control any traffic on the Mississippi River. Uh, and it's a very hard uh, um, bastion to get at from the land because on both the north and the south, it's surrounded by uh, wetlands, swamps, um, bayous, rivers. Uh, the only way an army can get at Vicksburg is uh, high ground is from the east. Uh, so you've got a, a bastion that, that uh, on high ground that controls the river, 
uh, and is, uh, support, is, is surrounded on three sides by water or wetlands or swamps. Uh, so it becomes a very strong defensive position. Uh, and that is why it is such a crucial uh, site for both sides, for the Confederacy and for the Union by uh, 1862 and especially 63. John, tell us a little bit about the Confederate defenses, um, if, if you can, especially General Pemberton. Born in Philadelphia, how he wound up a Confederate general is an interesting story too. But. Well, before I get into that, I just mentioned the, the, the point that Jim made about Vicksburg being built on a bluff. And uh, there are some people in Mississippi who have said, yeah, it was built on a bluff and it's continued that way ever since. <laughs> but I wouldn't say that. Um, you wouldn't dream of saying that. <laughs> I wouldn't agree with that, no. Not if I want to go back. Um, but Pemberton is, is an intriguing uh, individual. As, as Harold points out, he's from Philadelphia. How did he ever end up being a Confederate general? Well, he married a Southern woman. And she insisted that he stay with the Confederacy. You understand in those days, the, the old army, uh, they served all over the place, including the South. So he knew the South. It wasn't a problem. But it was a problem for him from this period on because he was never completely trusted. Here was this Yankee who was defending this important place, Vicksburg. And are we sure we can trust him? George H. Thomas had the same issues in the, uh, in the Union Army uh, to, a great, uh, to a great extent, too. But Pemberton is an engineer, as they all are. Of course, they are coming out of West Point. They're all engineers. But Mike Ballard's written the, the best book, a biography of, of Pemberton. And he makes the argument, and I think it's a good argument, that Pemberton was a good administrative general. He was not a good fighting general that he should never have been put in that position. If he'd have stayed where he was, putting up entrenchments in, in Charleston and other places, things would have been better. But he was appointed to, uh, to uh, Vicksburg, and the result was what uh, we know happened. Um, as, as Jim reminded me in the green room, there was there more than one Vicksburg campaign. And the first one is an overland campaign idea before we get into the, the, uh, the integration of a naval operation to make it even more complicated and daring. But Grant has some problems with a political general, General McClernand, doesn't he? And Jim, why don't you walk us through how that original plan evolves and, and where it, and then you and both of you and John can tell us why Grant, who takes everything, can't take Vicksburg right away. Well, John McClernand was a politician from Illinois. Uh, he and Lincoln had served together in the legislature in the 1830s, and they remained uh, in touch with each other, even though Lincoln was a Whig and then a Republican, and McClernand was a Democrat. Uh, but McClernand in 1861 played a key role in uh, mobilizing the allegiance of um, Southern Illinois for the Union. Southern Illinois was a very pro-South area of Illinois, and there was a lot of concern about whether they might uh, um, slough off into the Confederacy, or at least a lot of their people would go south. Uh, but McClernand and John Logan, another uh, political general who turned out to be a pretty good one, uh, helped to mobilize the allegiance of people in southern Illinois. And was off, as was often the case, uh, they were rewarded with uh, uh, military appointments as brigadier generals, eventually became major generals. Uh, and McClernand was very ambitious uh, for military glory. And in the uh, late summer of 1862, he warned Lincoln that if uh, Union forces didn't gain control of the Mississippi River pretty soon, uh, the Copperheads uh, would uh, uh, win all kinds of elections in the Midwest because farmers there were uh, suffering from the closure of the Mississippi River to their crops. Uh, and so he persuaded Lincoln to give him a special assignment to um, organize troops, many of them uh, recruited in response to Lincoln's second call for 300,000 volunteers in July 1862, uh, and give McClernand command of a special army uh, to go down and capture Vicksburg. 
Uh, well, of course, at this time, this is uh, November and December of 1862, Grant is in command of the main Union forces in that theater of war, and he's planning a campaign against Vicksburg. So you've got the two of them kind of working at cross purposes, uh, but Grant actually outsmarts and outmaneuvers McClernand. Uh, first, he gets Halleck's support. Yeah. Halleck, uh, Grant asks Halleck, uh, who has control of these troops? Uh, who has control of troops in this theater? Halleck sends him a telegram saying, you have control of all the troops in this theater. Uh, McClernand had just gotten married. He was enjoying a honeymoon with his wife, and while he was enjoying this honeymoon with his wife, uh, Grant took, had, had Sherman take his troops from Memphis down the river. Uh, in a kind of two-pronged campaign against Vicksburg in December of 1862. Grant moved overland uh, uh, through Holly Springs and Oxford, Mississippi, and Sherman moves down the river. And the two of them are supposed to catch Pemberton in a kind of pincers uh, and capture Vicksburg. Uh, but it turns out that uh, that doesn't happen. Uh, that. Uh, Grant's supply base at Holly Springs, Mississippi is destroyed by a cavalry raid under, command, under General Earl Van Dorn. Uh, and Sherman's attack uh, in the very, almost the last day of 1862 across uh, some of these swamplands uh, north of Vicksburg, Chickasaw Bayou, uh, is repulsed with heavy loss. And so this particular Vicksburg campaign uh, in December of 1862 is a failure. Uh, but Grant has uh, won the battle to gain control of his own army. McClernand becomes a corps commander under Grant and complains loudly to Lincoln that he's been robbed. Uh, and, and Lincoln tells him, uh, look, uh, don't wage this war against General Halleck and General Grant. Um, uh, just um, be satisfied with your corps command. and." Uh, do something good for the country rather than trying to do all these yeah. good things for yourself. Remember, McClernand is the guy in, the other guy in some of the photographs of Abraham Lincoln at and Antietam. George McClellan at Antietam. So he does maintain a relationship with, uh, with Lincoln. I also found an interesting tidbit in the press book. McClernand, um, walking in Springfield, Illinois in 1858, walking down the street, encountered Lincoln's favorite newspaper editor, um, demanded that he retract something nasty he had said about the Democratic Party, Stephen A. Douglas and McClernand in particular, and when the editor said, no, this is very typical in the 1850s, he took his cane and started beating him <laughs> in the street. So he was a better fighter than he showed later in the <laughs> Civil War. People had to drag him off uh, the, the editor. So, um, John, basically people just decide to hunker down for the winter of 62. It's mm -hmm. ended why is, just remind people why winter activity is not advisable even in the South. Yeah. It's eight degrees in your hometown today in Mississippi, right? That's right, that's right. Um, the difficulty, if you look at the Civil War, the, the four years of the, of the Civil War as a whole, you'll notice that a lot doesn't happen in what we would consider to be the winter, except, well, we have some instances, the famous mud march of Burnside in, 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 uh, in a January month, uh, which ended up as a mud march. But there are, the, it, it's not a time to really be doing much fighting because conditions are so bad. Roads are so bad, particularly. It's hard to, to supply your troops. It's hard to get your, your troops to move. So Grant is faced with this situation. Sherman has not achieved what he hoped to achieve uh, at Chickasaw Bayou at, at Vicksburg. Uh, Grant, uh, his land attack doesn't work because of, as Jim pointed out, uh, Van Doren's uh, burning his supplies in, in Holly Springs. So what are they going to do? The troops are there. What are they going to do with them? Well, Sherman says, look, Grant, the only way to do this is take everybody back to Memphis and start all over again. Go back to the original campaign. It's not going to work where you are, and I winners here, and so on and so on. Well. Grant says, no, Sherman, that's not such a good idea because if we withdraw troops back to Memphis, it's going to look like a retreat. And the result is going to be, again, that public opinion is going to turn against us. So they don't do this. So what's, what's Grant going to do with all these 
troops in a very, very wet winter. It's a very wet winter. Water levels are up very high. Marshes are, are up high. What's he going to do with them? Well, what, is, what he does with them, he keeps them busy. And they attempt a variety of ways to reach the high ground, the, the dry land from which to make an attack on, uh, on Vicksburg. And nothing works. Uh, my favorite one, I suppose, is the, uh, is the uh, trying to build a canal. And to build a canal, I wish we had a map, but if you, if you know what it looks like, the Mississippi River makes a sharp, goes north and comes, comes down, and there's a peninsula, basically. So one of the ideas that Lincoln, for example, favored, why not build, continue building this canal? An attempt was made earlier, it didn't work. Let's do this again, and if we do that, the river will go through the canal and it will avoid Vicksburg. Vicksburg will be high and dry. There'll be no water. There'll be no Mississippi River going in front of, in front of them. So they try this. That doesn't work. And there's a great irony behind that, I think, because when Grant was president, <laughs> there was a flood. And guess what that flood did? <coughs> it moved the Mississippi River more or less through that canal and left Vicksburg high and dry. So when you go to, to Vicksburg, and I know you all want to, well, after hearing us today, you'll all <laughs> die to go there. Um, what you might want to do is go up in Fort Hill and look down, and, and people are going to say, oh, look at the Mississippi River. And you'll know better because you'll say, no, that's not the Mississippi River. That's the Yazoo Pass, Yazoo, Yazoo Canal, <coughs> which was dug after the Mississippi River avoided avoided Vicksburg. So I think what Jim, Jim's point, I think, is particularly well taken, the topography of this area. We always think of the hills and the ridges and that. But if you look at those swamps and the, the creeks and the rivers, all of this is a very difficult thing. And how's Grant going to do this? Well, this is why Grant tries a lot of things. The issue still comes down to was he just trying to keep his uh, troops busy so they wouldn't catch all these awful dis swamp diseases? Or was he really trying things? My own view is I think it's a little bit of both. He'd be more than happy if one of these things worked. But I think in the back of his mind, I think he always had this idea that maybe the only way to do it is to do it the way it was done. But we don't want to jump ahead of the story. Well, well let's get to the spring. So it's <laughs> April, April 1863. Everyone's thawing out. Um, and um, Jim, what is Grant's new plan now for the spring of 63? He's still determined after all these months and canal digging and waiting anxiously, he's still determined to take this city. Pemberton is still there. What does he decide to do? Okay, his new plan is to um, send uh, part of the Union Navy, the River Navy, under uh, at this time, flag officer David Dixon Porter, uh, straight past Vicksburg in the middle of the night uh, with uh, gunboats, um, colliers carrying coal for the, for the ships, and supplies uh, on barges. Uh, at the same time, the troops are going to work their way down the west bank of the Mississippi River, building the roads as they go, uh, and building and corduroying the roads as they go and building bridges over all these bios and, and uh, wetlands area. Uh, and the troops and the gunboats and the supplies will rendezvous uh, at some point south of Vicksburg where they can cross the troops uh, to the Mississippi side, which is uh, basically the dry side of the, of the river, uh, and come at Vicksburg from the southeast. Um, there's a great risk in this uh, because once uh, the gunboats and the supply boats and the troops get south of Vicksburg, uh, they're not going to be able to go back north again. Uh, they'll be cut off from their supply base uh, north of, of, the, of the Vicksburg area until they can fight their way back to Vicksburg and reestablish contact uh, with the Union Navy and the supply uh, ships north of Vicksburg. So it's a very risky proposition. Uh, but one thing about uh, Grant uh, is his willingness to take risks. Just the idea that there's a joint operation with the Army and the Navy is pretty unusual at this stage, isn't it? 
it, 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 it wasn't uh, unique, but it was unusual. And Grant and Porter, uh, and Sherman and Porter, Sherman of course being Grant's right-hand man in the Army, uh, achieved a very great rapport with each other. They worked uh, as a team very effectively. Uh, uh, and uh, there was not the kind of rival, Army-Navy rivalry and jealousy that uh, infected some other campaigns in the Civil War. That was a cooperative effort. And uh, all, of th all three of the principals, Grant, Sherman, and Porter, gave credit to each other for this teamwork uh, in all of their writings uh, for years after the war. It was probably the outstanding example of combined operations in the Civil War. But John, it's, the, the boats have it's hard to fire up at Vicksburg, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. I or mean, impossible. Right. Well, and look, you know, consider this too. They chose a moonless night to try to get down, get down the river, but the Confederates were, were ready for them, I suppose, the best way to put it. Uh, they soaked uh, cotton bales and turpentine, and they uh, 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 had tire barrels, and they lit them up, and it lit up the river, and you see the silhouette. And so the Confederates are firing down, but that's, a, that's not necessarily always a good thing either because they can't lower their cannon, their, their, their artillery pieces, down too far. Uh, so the idea is, interesting enough, that it's smarter to, co to have the, the boats floating down the river closer to the Confederates than, uh, further, uh, than further away. Now, the, the, this gets us, I think, to a, to a point where the McLaren thing comes in, comes into play again. The traditional view has always been that Grant couldn't stand McLaren, and I think you could argue that very well, and I argue that. But I, I've heard some other historians making the point that if Grant didn't really uh, trust Mc, uh, McLaren that much, why did he put him as the leader of the forward movement on the western bank of the river, as, as uh, Jim was, was pointing out. Um, if he can't be trusted, wouldn't you want to you know, be with him all the time? Grant is not with him most of the time. He's with these other, these other uh, uh, generals. So it's an intri intriguing question. I don't know if there is an answer, but if you look at the, the, the documents, it's clear that Grant cannot stand McLaren. Sherman can't stand McLaren. And what's interesting is they don't talk about his military ability as much as they talk about the fact that he can't be trusted. He's trying to build himself up, make himself the great hero of, the, uh, of, the, of this campaign. And you can argue, I think, you know, both ways on, on, on this. Um, my own view continues to be that I think it came down to the fact that if you don't trust somebody, it doesn't matter how good a fighter they might be. You're not going to put, give them the kind of roles that they could get. Now, on the other hand, Grant thought a great deal of, uh, of, of Sherman. And what did he do with Sherman? He asked Sherman to go in the other direction, to make a feint in the direction of uh, Haynes Bluff, the same area where Sherman had been repulsed earlier. He doesn't worry about that, and he says, you, t you make them think that's where we're going, and then come down and join us. So it's an intriguing question, and it's one of those things that we often don't think about in war. The human relationships are crucial in the way that war is going to be, is going to be waged. But Jim, in the end, going to you for a sec, um, this campaign doesn't work either. And tell us when Grant decides the only answer here is to lay siege. Well, what happens when uh, Grant crosses the river uh, on April 30th and May 1st, about um, 40 miles south of Vicksburg, uh, he realizes that uh, he needs to destroy the um, Confederates' ability to come in on his rear if he's attacking Vicksburg. So rather than going due north toward Vicksburg immediately, which is what Pemberton expected him yeah. to do, uh, he decides to move east toward Jackson, which is 40 miles east of Vicksburg, and destroy the railroad there at Jackson uh, and the railroad connections between Jackson and Vicksburg. So Grant begins moving east. He fights a battle at, 
at um, Port Gibson and wins it. Uh, part of his army does. Part of his army fights a battle at Raymond, Mississippi, which is just southeast of Jack southwest of Jackson, uh, and wins that battle. Then they capture Jackson itself. Uh, then they turn west toward Vicksburg. In the meantime, of course, the Confederates have become alarmed about what's going on here. Uh, and Jefferson Davis has assigned General Joseph Johnston, who's in theater command of uh, this Western theater for the Confederacy, to go personally uh, with, from, and scrape together as many reinforcements as he can uh, to try to stop Grant and to co co cooperate with Pemberton, who's commanding about um, 35,000 men defending Vicksburg. Um, so uh, Jackson, uh, Johnston, I'm sorry, moves toward Jackson, Mississippi, <laughs> uh, but uh, Grant has already occupied uh, the state capital of Jackson. Then he turns west and marches toward Vicksburg, wins two more battles at Champion Hill, the largest battle in this campaign, and then at uh, Big Black River, uh, just east of Vicksburg, uh, and pens up uh, uh, Pemberton's 30,000 troops in the Vicksburg defenses, which are very formidable defenses with a lot of artillery, uh, trenches, uh, artillery redoubts, and all the rest of it. Uh, and uh, flushed with victory, uh, the Union forces uh, attack on May 19th, the day after they've won this Battle of Big Black River. Uh, and the Confederates, who uh, had been on the run, uh, and it looked like they were, you know, it was all over as far as they were concerned, um, rally and stop this attack on May 19th with uh, pretty uh, heavy Union casualties. Uh, but uh, Grant and the Union forces are still full of confidence. They want to capture Vicksburg. They still believe they've got the rebels on the run. And so Grant uh, carefully organizes uh, uh, an attack on May 22nd against the Vicksburg defenses. This, uh, the first example that I know of in military history, I'm probably wrong, but it's the first one I know of, where they actually um, all set their watches to the same time watches, yeah. uh, so that uh, they're going to launch the attack simultaneously at 10 o'clock in the morning, which they do. Uh, but again, it's repulsed uh, with, heavy con with heavy union losses. Uh, Confederates have somehow regained their morale now that they're uh, behind uh, heavy uh, elaborate earthworks with a lot of artillery support. So Grant decides after the failure of these two attacks on May 19th and 22nd, 1863, to settle down for a siege. Uh, and he's got these guys completely cut off because the Navy's on the river, completely controlling the Mississippi River. Uh, they've rigged up a lot of um, mortar scows so they can actually, the Navy can actually loop these mortar shells into the Vicksburg defenses. And Army artillery, of course, is firing, Union Army artillery is firing on the Vicksburg defenses. Uh, they've got Vicksburg cut off from land and from water. Uh, so it's a genuine siege, uh, but it's a siege that goes on for um, seven weeks. I just want to show another slide and quote a diarist from Vicksburg. You guys don't have to twist around. Oh, yeah. Look yeah, at it. A little hard to see it there. That's why we have. <laughs> this is. This is uh, uh, from the collection also. This is um, Dr. Adelbert Volk's propaganda picture, uh, uh, Cave Life in Vicksburg, mm -hmm. which is showing a uh, uh, person besieged. And we'll talk about the caves in a minute. I just want to read from Marianne Lockborough's diary, My Cave Life in Vicksburg, because this is almost an illustration of what she's writing. Shells falling into the streets like a flame of fire, making the earth tremble, and with a low singing sound, the fragments speed on in their work of death. Terror-stricken, we remain crouched in the cave, while shell after shell follow each other in quick succession. I endeavor by constant prayer to prepare myself for the sudden death I was almost certain awaited me. Um, tell us about the caves, which she refers to, and, and then I'd like you both to comment on, is this an, sort of an unprecedented and 
something we should take note of, a remarkable war against civilians. Yeah, the cave situation is, is intriguing. Uh, these are not natural caves. These are caves that people dig uh, under, uh, underground to protect themselves from this artillery uh, that is coming in. And if you see, if you go to the Vicksburg National Military Park, one of the exhibits shows what this cave, some of the caves, looked like. I mean, they had easy chairs in there. They lived in there most of, most of the time. And they tried to get out onto the streets uh, when they thought the shelling uh, would, not, uh, would not happen. But I'm going to jump out of the cave and just make, a, make another point uh, uh, about this question of, of human relations in warfare. Well, consider this fact, too, and we haven't had time to talk about this, but Joe Johnston is supposed to be overall commander of Confederate troops in that area. Uh, Pemberton is supposed to answer to him. And what does the president of the Confederacy do but sends orders directly to Pemberton because he doesn't trust Joe Johnston. For good reason. Pardon me? For good reason. For good reason, yeah. I mean, well, for whatever. But the point was they did not, they couldn't agree. And, and the result is you have Pemberton listening to Johnston, Johnston saying, don't let yourself uh, get caught up in Vicksburg because you lose Vicksburg and you lose the army. Whereas the president, Jefferson Davis, is telling Pemberton, hang on to, to uh, Vicksburg of everything that you have. And I got, just got thinking today, and we were talking briefly before about these what ifs. You know, you teach it all, you get a lot of what ifs. And students will say, what if this had happened? What if this had happened? And it just struck me, and I'm going to ask, put Jim on the spot to answer this what if. What if Pemberton had not gone into Vicksburg? What if he had fought uh, Grant's army? someplace in the open, outside Vicksburg. My belief is, and again, I'm right, wrong, who knows, but my belief is Grant would have beaten them outside Vicksburg. That Vicksburg campaign would have added, ended much more quickly, and then we can you know, imagine what else could happen. What, what do you I think? think that's right. And in fact, Pemberton did fight Grant outside Vicksburg at, at Champion, Champion Hill, Hill. Yeah, and got right. beat. Yeah, right, um, right. And if he had... Uh, continued to try to operate out in the open, uh, and a, another battle had taken place, maybe the Battle of Starkville, for all maybe. I know. <laughs> uh, he would probably have been beaten again. No, Grierson was taking care of Starkville. Yeah, okay. That's right. Well, let, let's Starkville get to the is civilian, where he lives. The civilian issue. I want to, you want to, I want to keep in chronology here. <laughs> Talk about the, the impact on the civilians, whoever wants to tackle that. Well, you, you uh, implied that this was the first time that there had been... Uh, um, an attack on civilians in the Civil War. I wanted that's to provoke really you true. into, into um, responding. That's Burnside had shelled Fredericksburg in December of right. 1862. Uh, and of course, later on, Grant uh, or Sherman shells Atlanta. Um, these are defended cities. Uh, There's plenty of uh, Confederates in, in the, in the um, law of, if you can say there is such a thing as the law of warfare, a defended city is fair game, mm -hmm. uh, even if there are civilians in it. Uh, there were still 3,000 civilians at Vicksburg. Uh, quite a few of them had, had left before the armies got there. Um, so you've got 30,000 troops and 3,000 civilians and no food coming yeah. in. Uh, so pretty soon the mules and horses start to disappear. Mm -hmm. uh, there are no rats left in Vicksburg uh, uh, as the weeks go by. And then mysteriously, uh, all the dogs and cats disappear from the streets. So that by uh, the end of June, uh, you've actually got literally starvation yeah. occurring in Vicksburg. Well, let me show you a, another thing from the collection that illustrates the point. And this is also in the, in the 50 Objects book. This is of all of the so-called wallpaper editions of newspapers in the South, uh, newspapers that are printed on sheets of wallpaper because the paper supply had dried up in most of the South by 1863. This is probably the most famous. It's the issue of July 2nd, 1863, the Vicksburg Daily Citizen. And it actually was not published until July 4th when Pemberton surrendered. 
and Grant's men came in, and obviously there were, um, there was actually a dare in the paper saying, is the great generalissimo going to really eat the rabbit in Vicksburg? Well, you have to catch the rabbit before you eat the rabbit. So the men march into Vicksburg, they find this newspaper, and they break open the type racks, and they print their own newspaper story in the bottom right-hand part of this article. Um, and it says, um, the banner of the Union floats over Vicksburg. General Grant has caught the rabbit. He has dined in Vicksburg, and he brought his dinner with him. The daily citizen lives to see it. No more will it eulogize the luxury of mule meat and fricasseed kitten. For the last time, it appears on wallpaper. It will be valuable hereafter as a curiosity. <laughs> and in fact, it is probably the most valuable Civil War newspaper that, that exists. Um, I think we should ask anyone who, who has a question uh, to step down to the various microphones, um, and we'll be happy to take your questions. In the meantime, I guess I'll show one more image while we set up for questions. This is one of the things that Louise Mirror set up on a table for me to look at when she asked me to do the book on the 50 objects in the Historical Society. And this sort of nondescript looking sketch, which is an original work of art by an artist near Vicksburg, shows a, a group of African-American refugees coming into Grant's camp around July or June 1863. It was later published, adapted, and sort of fleshed out for Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper. What's remarkable about this is two things. One, the slaves were owned by Jefferson Davis. They had escaped from his nearby plantation when they heard that Grant's army was nearby. And part two, here is the Emancipation Proclamation in action. The protection of the proclamation for any enslaved people that with the help of their army or the Union Army or through their own initiative can get out of captivity and get to the protection of Union lines. And because they're Jefferson Davis's, quote, people, he was really ticked off that they <laughs> left. He said, what did I do wrong? They were doing so well. Um, well, you know, anyway. there's another story that, uh, that uh, with, deals with Sherman. Sherman during and I can't remember exactly where it was, but Jefferson Davis owned the famous plantation that belonged to his brother Joe, but then he owned some other property, and uh, Sherman's on horseback, and he comes on onto the property, and he wants a, something from the well, so he sends one of the soldiers to get him some water, and he looks down, and there's some sort of book on the ground, and he has the soldier pick it up to him, and the book is, as the story goes, the Constitution of the United States. And he opens the front cover and written inside is Jefferson Davis. So whether that's true or not, I'm not going to I'm not going to know for sure because we have that's the only reference we have to it. But it's an intriguing story anyway. Mm. Fits These are 137 escapees, all going into Grant's lines around uh, around Vicksburg. We have a question here. Hi, I'm Jim Pasinich. I'm a docent here. My question is: Was Pemberton's motivation for surrendering? to save the civilian population or simply because he had an untenable military situation that Joseph Johnston wouldn't seem to support by sending him aid? Yeah, the only thing I can tell you is uh, that uh, there is a, a famous message that some of uh, uh, Pemberton's soldiers sent him who basically said something like, uh, well, if you can't feed us, you might as well sur surrender us. Uh, it was, there was, there was no hope, I think. It, Fact, let's, let's, let's do another what if. If the surrender had not taken place, Grant already had in action another plan for another attack based on building caves under the Confederate fortifications, blowing them up all at once. And uh, from everything I know about this, it, they would have lost anyway. And Grant. Not, not his greatest moment when he thought of blowing up. Uh, areas uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. work out too well at the crater <laughs> right yeah that's that's yeah another that, at a later time but 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 that you know so who knows what would have happened but I think it was the soldiers soldiers were they were finished I think he would have been um, uh, there would have been a mutiny uh, and if there hadn't been a mutiny there would have been uh, mass desertion the yeah. soldiers would have gone over to the Union lines I mean they were literally starving 
they couldn't hold out any longer. There was really no, no alternative, I think. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, we have a question here. Uh, Bob Miller, I wanted to ask you to comment about the importance of Milliken's Bend, the defense there, with, by including black troops on June 9th, and the impact of that. I, I'm not sure I heard the whole Milliken's thing. Bend. Oh, Milliken's Bend. Oh, Milliken's oh, yeah. Bend. Oh, yeah. oh, well, that was uh, an, an integral part of the Vicksburg campaign. The Confederates, um, of course, were trying everything to come to <laughs> Uh, Vicksburg's relief, although Jefferson Davis, uh, justifiably in my opinion at any rate, thought that Joseph Johnston should have tried and didn't. Uh, but Dick Taylor, Richard Taylor, who was commander of uh, some of the Confederate troops in the Trans-Mississippi, that is west of the Mississippi, uh, did send uh, um, some Texas and some other troops, Arkansas troops, against Milliken's Bend, which was a supply base on the Mississippi for the Union forces about a dozen, 15 miles north of Vicksburg on the river. Uh, and the only defenses there at the time were a, a new regiment of black troops that had had almost no training. Uh, they'd just been organized, former slaves, most of them, uh, plus some, uh, I believe, Iowa troops and uh, a couple of gunboats. Uh, and the Confederates attacked uh, the black troops, uh, uh, helped to uh, repulse them. Uh, suffered heavy casualties, uh, but it was uh, one of the first examples of black soldiers in combat in the Civil War, and their uh, courageous performance there had an important impact on uh, persuading not only the Lincoln administration and the Army itself, but Northern public opinion to continue this, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, at this time, radical and uh, untried experiment of organizing former slaves uh, to fight for their own freedom and to fight for the Union. And that took place in, uh, in uh, about June 10th, I think, mm -hmm. in, in 1863, while the siege of Vicksburg was going on. And huge press coverage, as you point out, yes. of yeah. African Americans taking up arms and fighting successfully. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. Yes, uh, Carolyn Starry. Um, I'm originally from near Gettysburg, and I was able to attend the 150th anniversary, and I heard Dr. McPherson speak in the cemetery. And I don't know if you remember me from the Sunday before. I was so desperate to get into the cemetery because they said there are no tickets, and they were expecting <laughs> 10,000 people. I stayed in Gettysburg with friends so I'd have a chance of getting into the cemetery. And I said, I know what I'll do. I bought your book here. <laughs> I drove to my home near Gettysburg. I went to your book signing on Sunday. And I told you that I was a volunteer here. And I said, if you didn't have a personal assistant with you, I'd be happy to carry your notes. <laughs> into the cemetery, and you said, thank you, but I'm fine. I'm <laughs> and I we were hoping I'm for some climactic act Never of going to get into the Jim, cemetery. You re tell us, give us a question, though. It's a great okay, story. Okay, I have a question. <laughs> this is like the- My the, question the is- Dying to get into a cemetery to the nth degree. <laughs> <laughs> That's to be continued. Um, so I was reading in the Gettysburg Times, June 30th, it was an, uh, a lengthy article about the involvement of women in the Civil War as soldiers. And I was wondering, since I have three experts, if you could enlighten. Uh, it, it said there were about three to 500 women that actually uh, did uh, Participate in the Civil War. You mean in, in fighting? In fighting, okay. that's correct. Thank well, you, you. You, you, you gentlemen are welcome to that question. Well, uh, <laughs> nobody knows for sure how many there were, but there, there may well have been three to 500. Um, these were, for the most part, um, some of them were wives of male soldiers who um, didn't want to be left at home alone. <laughs> uh, wanted to be with their husbands. Some of them were girlfriends of Union soldiers. Uh, some of them were just uh, uh, camp followers, uh, cross-dressers, uh, who wanted to, they were patriotic, they wanted to enlist and fight. Uh, most of them were found out 
before they had a chance to fight, but not all of them, and some of them actually did fight. Uh, six of them were actually found out when they had babies uh, in the yeah, army. Yeah. Uh, clearly proved that they were not male soldiers. Yeah. Um, but uh, there, there's uh, quite a literature about uh, these women soldiers yeah. now, uh, and it is an interesting story. Some of them managed to um, go through the whole war without being discovered, and if you go to Vicksburg, uh, and go to the magnificent Illinois monument at Vicksburg, uh, where all of the Illinois soldiers who were at Vicksburg are listed, every one of them by name, and uh, go to the 95th Illinois and look down the list there, you'll see the name of Albert Cashier, uh, private in the 95th Illinois, who uh, fought through the entire war, uh, went to farming, bachelor farming after the war in Illinois, uh, and was not discovered to be, uh, the real name of Albert Cashier was Jenny Hodgers. Uh, and uh, in a farm accident in 1911, she was discovered to have been a woman. Uh, all that time she passed as a man in the war itself and for nearly half a century after the war. And you can find Albert Cashier at Gettysburg. Yeah. At, at Vicksburg, sorry. It's a great story. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have time for one more, I'm sorry. <laughs> A shorter person, please. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. wonder if uh, you could talk about or describe the uh, control of supplies, uh, medicines, uh, and uh, Vicksburg citizenry in and out of the... Uh, siege uh, uh, fortifications. Uh, related question, did the uh, Pemberton's forces uh, refuse to allow civilians to leave once they had decided this is it, we're going to make a uh, stand right here? Or, or did they permit whoever wanted to go to leave? Were civilians trapped? No. Uh, well, they were, they were trapped. Allowed I mean, to leave. The whole, the whole thing is fascinating when you, because when you think of a siege, uh, it doesn't work the way Vicksburg normally normally works. Because if the Confederates escape, which is what you want in the siege, obviously, the Union captures Vicksburg. So it, it's, it's a difficult, but no, I, I, don't, I don't know of any indication where, where, where civilians were forced to stay there. They stayed on their, on their own, uh, own volition, basically. And when it did come to medicine and other things, it was, it was a horror because there was no material getting in. That included what awful medical treatment there was even at that time. Let, let me end as I like to do with uh, Mr. Lincoln. Um, he writes two letters to his various marquee name commanding generals in July 1863. One is to the hero of Gettysburg, General Meade, and he tells him that he's bitterly disappointed that he didn't follow up his victory by pursuing Lee as Lee's army limped out of, of Pennsylvania. Um, he was within your easy grasp. He could have ended the war. And in the end, he doesn't send the letter. It's a pretty rough critique of Meade's fairly extraordinary performance. And Meade might have had to resign if that letter ever went through the mail. And around the same time, Lincoln writes to Ulysses S. Grant. And this letter he sends. And I just want to read a little bit of it. I do not remember that you and I ever met personally. I write this now as a grateful acknowledgement for the almost inestimable, inestimable service you have done the country. And then he adds this remarkable further word. When you first reached the vicinity of Vicksburg, I thought you should do what you finally did march the troops across the neck, run the batteries with the transports, and thus go below. I never had any faith except as a general hope that you knew better than I that the Yazoo Pass expedition and the like could succeed. And then when you got below and took Port Gibson and Grand Gulf and vicinity, I thought you should go down the river and join General Banks. And when you turned northward east of the Big Black, I feared it was a mistake. Boy, did Lincoln know these details or what? Maybe he was showing off a little bit, but then he ends with this extraordinary comment. 
And you can, can you imagine any other commander in chief, very few at any other time making this kind of statement? Here's how he ends his letter to General Grant. I now wish to make the personal acknowledgement that you were right and I was wrong. As Lincoln knew, Grant's vision and Grant's resolve and Grant's skill had done incalculable good. Um, New York may have been descending into a, a particular hell of its own with draft riots. Lee's army may have made it back to Virginia unmolested, but Vicksburg belonged to the Union. Fairly won, the Mississippi was completely controlled by the Federals, and it was won by that bulldog hero of this campaign, and as Lincoln may have envisioned, the key to winning the entire war, Ulysses S. Grant. I think all of us hope we've opened some windows and doors to that story tonight. Thank you. Thank you.